Yorana Tato, Aloha Kako, and Hafade. You are listening to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Our vision is creating a resource for Pilina, connection to place, and Native Stories aims to activate Indigenous perspectives. I am Vehia Wheeler. I am from Waia Oahu, and I am now residing in Afaretu Morea Te Amaohi. Today, I'm super excited to introduce my guest from Guahan or Guam, whose name is Ken Goffigan Cooper. And I know him from the University of Hawaii in Manoa, where I studied and where he studied. And he's done some work in politics in Hawaii and Guam. And I'll leave it to him to say his bio and give us more information right now. Hello, Ken. Half a day. Half a day. Half a day. How are you, Bia? I'm good. Thank you. Would you like to give our listeners any sort of intro about yourself, maybe in Chamorro, as you are a Chamorro speaker? Mm, sure. You know, I'm Kenneth Gofigan Cooper, Tauta Wahanzu. Uh, the Monkulu Zugwini is a Guahan, and Paul Gu, uh, Professor Zugi, Unibetsada Guahan, the political science, and a student Samoru, and Gof Magazu, Nagagi Zugwini, Parabe Quintusia, Pudi, Puriahu, Tano Mami, it's a Guahan, and uh, yeah, Kalan, and all that, she's just smart. My name is uh, Ken Goffigan Cooper, I'm, uh, you know, born and raised here in Guam. And uh, I'm a assistant professor of political science and Chamorro studies at the University of Guam, and I'm very, very happy to be here to talk to you about you know my s- stories of my home. And you know, thank you for thank you for inviting me to be here. Greatly appreciate it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure you have a lot to tell us. So I'm sure it'd be interesting for a lot of people, for myself also. Um, yeah. So why don't we start with that? Why don't you tell us um, a little bit Let's more? Of what? I said, let's hope I have something interesting to say. <laughs> well, I'm sure you made it to um, to Professor by being a little bit interesting. <laughs> All right. So can you tell us um, more about your connection to Guam, uh, where you grew up, anything about your family that you want to share, uh, um, family life in Guahan, maybe a favorite ancestor, and like what Guahan means to you? Yeah, so Guahan in, in our in Finotsamoru, the uh, indigenous language of the uh, indigenous people here, means we have, right? And so for me, you know, our ancestors viewed this place as a place that you could live off of. You were interconnected with the land and the ocean and the waters. And so uh, I'm very glad to be from here. Um, But, you know, a little bit about my story, and I think it's pretty interesting, is because now I am very, very involved in issues of decolonization and self-determination to protect Guam. And I view Guam as, you know, obviously where I was raised, but it's where my heart is and I view my children being raised. But I actually didn't grow up feeling that, you know. I always grew up aspiring towards something greater. I always said I wanted to get off the rock. You know, my goal was to uh, finish high school and then move to the States and just try to uh, do what I do, you know, uh, whatever that was at the time. I wanted to be a medical doctor who also – toured in his spare time in a metal band, you know? And I and at the time I, I believe that those 
I believe that I couldn't be happy where I was from. And I think a lot of that has to do, a lot of people may have that experience, but as you grow older and as I grew older and I started to learn more about my homeland, um, a lot of that changed. You know, that's why the University of Guam was the place I wanted to teach at when I finished my PhD. Um, and so I think that's an interesting story only because my love for Guam um, wasn't really like at the forefront when I was in high school, you know, and I just, it led me to wonder, do others have this experience? And if so, why, and how can we change that? You know? And so that's, that's one part of, I think my story that is sort of necessary for a future discussion between you and me. Uh, but other than that, to the, to the, to the other stuff, um, favorite ancestor, um, he's not even that far back, but definitely my grandfather, Gregorio Kinata Gofigan, who I never met. Uh, but reading about his life just really intrigued me. For and, and one interesting thing was that I belonged to this organization named the Young Men's League of Guam, and I was reading through um, his obituary, my grandpa's obituary, and I saw that he was also a member of this organization, which is the uh, organization of Chamorro men that stems back to the 1910s, 1920s. And so I never met him, but everyone tells me he was – this amazing man who was an educator, who was an administrator, whose heart was larger than, you know, anyone's they've ever met. I mean, just the amount of, he was willing to give you the shirt off of his back. Right. Um, and, you know, I just wish I met, I met him. And so that's been a continued source of, I guess I wish, for me, you know, so that would be my favorite ancestor. Um, a favorite place here in Guam? Um, I don't know if it's a favorite place, but when I read the initial email from you, you were talking about like a place in Guam that tells a story. And I grew up here in Tamuning, Guam, which is right near Tumon, which is the mini Waikiki, right? And right near my house, there's a place called Ipau Beach. Okay, so I literally live five minutes walking distance from a very popular beach here in Guam. And so I grew up having birthday parties at this beach. You know, this beach was a place that I uh, celebrated New Year's in life. It was a place that my when I grew up, my band used to play. We used to set up gigs at pavilions there. Families used to barbecue there. But I never knew that at one point in history, mm-hmm. that Ipau, that, that stretch of, of beach there, was a leper colony, right? And that the early 1900s with the U.S. naval governors, they brought a lot of those who they thought had leprosy into Ipau, right? And a lot of people who were there in Ipau didn't actually have leprosy. They had other diseases that resembled leprosy, but it was not leprosy, right? And so Tomorrow families really did not want their loved ones being in um, mm-hmm. Ipau, being locked up there. And they went to great lengths to try to visit their loved ones, not have their loved ones have to uh, uh, go into this new sort of um, settlement for lepers. Right? Mm-hmm. So imagine that. And Ipau, if you say like uh, Ipaunya, that means it's smell. So Ipau is like the smell is a rough translation. Right? And you, I never knew that growing up. So right near my house where I had experiences right, of, of joy, it was also a place of suffering, 
And eventually down the line, you know, the, uh, the U.S. naval government would ship a lot of these Tomorrows, uh who, who had leprosy and others who didn't, but they thought had leprosy, off to the Philippines, this island in the Philippines. And that was a huge source of love for many families. Right. So all of that happened five minutes away from my house. But I would have never known about any of that if I didn't read more into Guam's history. And so for me, Guam is a place that is filled with stories. And yet we don't know many of them just growing up. Right. So that's my quest in life. Right. It's just to know more stories about my home because this island is so much. It has so much, you know, like I used to tell my Guam history students, you think Guam is boring and it's just this speck of land. <laughs> and we had like, uh, they assassinated a governor at one point in time, right? Like there was a leper colony here, like all of these stories that you think only exist in geographical larger land masses exist in our home. And so let's treat our home with respect, let's treat our home with dignity, let's hear more of our indigenous and native stories. Yes. Yes. So good. I, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Yeah. I mean, I felt um, a lot of parallels already with you talking about kind of growing up, not even knowing your own history. So not having that cultivation of a, of appreciation for where you are and then slowly uncovering that as you become older and then questioning, you know, why am I not learning this and how can I how can I share more to the people around us instead of these cliches about how there's nothing here, that everything needs to come from outside, that there's um, the mainland, right, quote unquote mainland, which we need to migrate to. And that's all right. a part of Native Stories and like what we try to bring out about um, the play, the the relationships that people have the indigenous people have with their place and, and the richness that comes along with that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really why I got into this work. You know, I didn't actually start caring about Guam's history and the political status of Guam until I was in college, you know, and I learned, I took a Guam history course, my first Guam history course at college with Dr. Ann Hattori. Um, it really changed my life. I just, I just never knew how much, you know, like trauma our people went through. And it just made me understand Guam a lot more. And yeah, you, you know, this is a very common thing that we see in, you know, native homelands, right? Is like not knowing that history off the bat. Like, why, why isn't this history widespread? Why isn't it like the common, the common knowledge that we grow up um, learning about. And yeah, so I, I definitely agree there are many parallels in, in other places where Native stories are, you know, pretty, uh, how do I say it, telling a similar archetype story there. Right, right, of islands. Um, and actually, can you tell us more about your work that you do today. And um, I am going to quote Twitter now that you're, that you put your nerdy quote unquote nerdy book beast on Twitter. So what exactly, what exactly does that mean? What exactly do you do today as a, as a professor? 
sure. So the Dirty Book Beast was uh, my mully, right? The uh, the godmother of my my daughter, mm-hmm. Jesse Luhan Bennett, who's actually <laughs> down in Waikato uh, University in Hamilton. Uh, she actually called me that because she noticed that mm-hmm. I'm just like always reading. So and like, you're just a nerdy book. I really like the way that sounded, especially the alliteration at the end. So I just put that there. But um, uh, but yeah. Um, so right now, I am a political science faculty and also a Chamorro studies faculty. Um, and so really, what I do is I try to build a bridge between international relations and uh, island politics or Guam politics, right? Because I think. You know, for those who don't know much about Guam, Guam is currently a heavily militarized place with roughly around 27 percent of Guam's land currently occupied by the United States military. We have a large Air Force base in the north, Anderson Air Force, and then we have um, sparse installations. And then in the south of the island is where we find most of what we call naval base Guam. And so Guam's strategic location to the United States military has been sort of this perpetual source of um, either um, resistance or, you know, for others, a perpetual source mm. of money, right? But the, the thing is, you cannot even talk about Guam without talking about the United States military mm. presence here in Guam. Whether one agrees with that or not, it is so interwoven with the contemporary status of Guam that we have to understand it. So when I started learning about just how militarized Guam was, just how important Guam was, it's a very common saying that Guam is the tip of the spear for the American military in this region. Uh, We've been described as America's unsinkable aircraft carrier as well. So when we work through all these things, when you grow up seeing the military fences as you drive by around the island, you drive by these, these fences with barbed wire. I wanted to understand why Guam, right? That was what I wanted to do in my life. Why Guam? And I thought that international relations could help me understand where Guam fits within the international system and why we are used the way that we are used, right? And so that's really where my work um, originated from, right? It was just this burning desire to look at all of these folks who talk about Guam without ever talking to Guam and find out what they're thinking and then find out the logics behind why Guam is used the way it is used today. And this is very relevant work with the um, U.S. and China both rattling their, you know, rattling and displaying their their strength and their potential strength, rather, in the Indo-Pacific region, Guam is a critical piece of that puzzle. We recently saw the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, which did, if if I'm not mistaken, just recently pass um, uh, the House. Then that includes $2.2 billion. And when Philip Davidson was talking about the importance of the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, one key part of his plan was for a 360-degree missile defense for the island of Guam, right? So what does that tell you? It tells you that Guam's use for the United States military for power projection in this region has 
not Mm -hmm. gone away. And thus we cannot stray away from this conversation. And so what I do is in political science, I'm primarily specialized in international relations is number one, I try to understand this, but number two, I try to figure out whether or not there is an alternative, there are, there are alternative futures for Guam and Micronesia outside of being stuck in the middle of great powers, such as the United States and China. Is our destiny to simply choose between one or the other? Or can there be another future in which we are sort of the focal point of, of strength and autonomy in the region? So that's where I'm working at right now is trying to figure out if um, trying to figure out how we can um, get out of this this arrangement that we're currently in from an international system mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, and um, that is something I think that a lot of Pacific Islanders in Oceania kind of question as well. If you're if you're thinking about um, China and the U.S. and Oceania, which is the largest, like one third of the world, right? So it's a, a large part of the world. Mm-hmm. I think that that that's a pretty uh, that's a question that arises for a lot of people, or maybe not. Some people will just be like, "Well, we have no other choice, right? We have no other choice but to be French. We have no other choice but to be the U.S." And so you're saying that you help to explore, you explore that yourself, and you help others to explore that. Right. I don't lead them to an answer, but I, I sort of ask mm-hmm. them because I think when we study islands, there is a huge, um, rather it seems like the initial reaction for people is to think of geographical determinism, right? The idea that we're a small landmass means that we only have maybe A or B available to us. And I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to push the envelope a little bit and say, well, I think there may be a C or a D. Do you agree? And if you do agree that D exists and that A and B are not the only options, then how could we get there? Right. And so I don't try to proselytize. Right. But what I try to do is to um, shake the very comfortable and situated viewpoints in people's minds that says, right, that Guam can only have future one or future two. Right. I don't think that's the case. It will be a lot of work to get to alternative futures three or four, but I think it's 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 a well worth investment of time and investment of intellect intellectual prowess to investigate option C or D, whatever they may be. Right. And I'm sure that's a a, a fun exercise. <laughs> I'm sure you get all kinds of answers. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I mean, you get some you get some students who absolutely don't think that mm. C or D can ever be a possibility. And then you just ask them to justify it, right? And, and so I want to help train students how to think critically about the world around them. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a very good argument for saying that Guam is one of the best places for you to think critically about the world. Mm. Because... There tends to be, on one hand, this idea that Guam is insignificant, that Guam is just a small speck of land in the Pacific. But when you look at it from an American strategic perspective, Guam is vastly important. It is vastly significant. So 
are we significant or insignificant or are we both? Mm-hmm. Right. How do we think critically about the world? When we have these two narratives going on at almost the same time. Mm-hmm. What does that tell us? Number one, right, what does this tell us about how the world thinks of us? Number two, how do we play into dominant geo- geographical representations of ourselves and, you know, see, is there a way out of it? Right? Is there a way out? So that's primarily what I do at the University of Guam. Um, I'm also very involved in the decolonization and self-determination sort of a conversation here in Guam. You know, Guam is currently an unincorporated territory of the United States, right? So what that means, at least within the American political system, we do not have representation in the Senate. We don't have... Um, uh, votes in the Electoral College, and we only have non-voting representation in the lower chamber of the U.S. Congress, the House of Representatives. Uh, we are also, because of in the U.S. Constitution, Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2, known as the Territorial Clause, we are under the plenary power of the United States Congress. So that's where we fit um, within the U.S. political system. A lot of these, a lot of this can be traced back to when the U.S. acquired um, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines as a result of the Spanish-American War and the insular, case or insular cases that followed in that period uh, around 1901 and to uh, roughly around 1922, we can say. So I'm involved in that discussion as well, and I don't think that um, the political status conversation is separate from the militarization conversation. I think they're very much intertwined. So in my work, I also teach about Guam's political status as well. Mm, okay. And I'm sure just by people listening to this podcast, they've learned so much, like myself, <laughs> about Guam's political status and the history of that. And um, you're kind of showing how, actually, how important Guam is to America, even if they maybe don't outrightly say it within the government or within the uh, the actual, you know, mainland america yeah you can go to um you can go to the the states and people will ask you what is Guam, right yeah well you know so i mean but but at the same token right i mean a lot of chamorros live in the states as well um and so you know it's it's not like nobody knows about guam but it's it's just definitely um the point that i think guam gives so much for you know america's national security Yet, what I do not think is the case is I do not think that uh, protection of American national security trickles down to protection of Guam's genuine security. And that's a a huge, also a huge part of my work is, you know, there's this idea that if the U.S. protects its security, then Guam is safe as well. But I actually, uh, I don't think that is the case. In many instances, uh, I'm not make I'm not trying to make a... uh, uh, I'm not trying to be polemical about this at all, but just, you know, empirically, um, there are a lot of things and a lot of events that occur in Guam that are detrimental to Guam that are used in the name of American national security. So, you know, it, it, when you understand your sort of existence in that framework, right, of being the place that the U.S. protects its national security in this region, but a lot of times at the expense 
of the genuine security for Guam, it becomes a motivation to learn more about the world, right? Mm. And the and the ecologies of the world and where Guam is situated in these various ecologies. So that's that's sort of where um, I think is my driving force, what I wake up every morning wanting to do and and hopefully being able to teach others to think about these things as well. Yeah. And so are you um, finding um, a good reception, whether young or old, to these discussions that you're having? Or what kind of um, what kind of a reaction are people of Guam, like the Chamorro people or any migrants to Guam? Are they um, receptive to these conversations? Well, I think I'll only speak about the interactions I've had in the classroom because that's where I have um, the most experience in seeing the transformation of thought. There are a lot of students who never even thought about this before, mm. right? And so that to me. Is, is a battle won, right? Yeah. It's like, I don't even want you, I don't even desire that you agree with me at the end, right? But what I tell them is take all these things that you thought were common sense about the world and realize that it has an origin, right? Realize that things are not just the way they are because they are the way they are, right? We have to do, we have to be more intellectually, um, we, we cannot be intellectually lazy in this regard. Right. Mm. And so for me, what I've seen is students wake up to the conversation in, okay, how much of what I think about the world is, has not always been the case. Right. Mm. What are the things that happened that made it that way? And I think it's a very important conversation to have um, when we're talking about international relations or politics. And so I have seen um, the light bulbs go in students' minds, like you can sometimes physically see it in their face, right? <laughs> when they're deeply about the world, and I think that's what I want to do at the end of the day is teach students how to think deeply about the world. Mm, that's amazing. And do you think? Um, I know that you've had quite a journey with uh, Chamorro language as well. Is this uh, any way connected to your Chamorro language journey? Um, the issues of uh, the politics and the work, it's probably interrelated, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, before I got into international relations, I actually just wanted to be a, um, uh, I, I wanted to be a linguist, you know? That was like my trajectory, but then I, I really, you know, I, I guess I got into, you know, geopolitics and, and um, international relations and decided that would be my career path. But I still do a lot of Chamorro language work. I'm actually working on a uh, Chamorro language revitalization um, study to see what are the recommendations for how we can move this forward. But for me, it was a huge part of why I loved. I learned to love, you know, Guam and learned to love my my being and existence as a Chamorro. You know, mm. uh, I not speaking the language. Um, at all, it was a joke. I actually look. I actually look very derisively upon, you know, upon this joke I used to make that the only Tamora words I knew were red rice and Keleguin, which are um, <laughs> part of our, you know, um, and I used to feel pride in that joke. And it was really, you know, once again, I can't give enough credit to. I took um, Doctor 
Anne Hattori's History of Guam class, and I took Dr. Michael Babakwa's um, World History class. And that's when, for me, the, how do I say, the, the, the glass of illusion shattered, right? And I craved to know more about the island than about my people. And I found language as a, as a nourishment, as a nourishment to heal what I thought were years of just being openly uh, ignorant about my Tomorrow identity, you know, even though I was definitely raised with Tomorrow values, you know, and I think that's the interesting part, right? I had a, I was raised by my, uh, by my parents and grandmother. We lived in the same house. And so I definitely knew a lot of customs. I would learn the Tomorrow core values, but I just didn't connect with it that much. Right. And so, Language was my journey of finding myself. And so I uh, worked really hard at it. I, Dr. Luhan Babakwa, Dr. Michael Luhan Babakwa was willing to meet with me every week to help me on my journey. And from there, I um, became fluent. When I moved to Hawaii, I taught Samoan language classes for free to the Samoan diaspora in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. When I moved back to Guam, I taught, um, I taught uh, Samoan language classes at the university. And so for me, it's, it's, it's inextricable for, from my story of how I got into international relations because it all stemmed out of a insatiable curiosity for knowing more about my people and my homeland. And language will always be a source of nourishment and a source of vitality, um, in this jer- continuous journey. I will never put this, uh, this word down. I can't because Tomorrow is my uh, my daughter's first language, and so you know tomorrow is spoken in the household daily, right? So um, for me, um, indigenous languages and tomorrow language was a window into becoming who I wanted to become, right? And so now here I am. The journey is not over, um, and I I will forever. And forever want to speak Tomoru. I want to help others speak Tomoru. I want to help others teach their children to speak Tomoru. Um, and that is another driving force uh, of mine in life, right? Those are my two primary passions. You would say the, uh, the geopolitics of Guam and Tomoru language about life. Yeah. Um, that's really inspiring. I mean, because you're saying that it wasn't your first language, but now it ends up being your daughter's first language. So within one generation, things can really change. And that can be um, kind of inspiring, you know, for even for adult learners like myself. I'm a adult learner of my native indigenous language, which is Tahitian. And I never thought that I would get to this point. And so it, it actually is really cool to to see the world in the way that my ancestors have as well, because through language you have right. a different perspective. And I'm just like, wow, I was missing out on a lot, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the epistemological uh, benefits you get from speaking another language, especially your, the language of your people is, is so great. And, um, but yeah, it was, you know, I, I didn't learn the language until my twenties. Um, you know, I just turned 30, like last month. So, you know, it took me 
it took me a few years to do it. It was, it's a lot of hard work, but I think the overarching point is that it's never too late. You know, I, I think there's this, this very weird perception that like adults can't learn languages later on in life. You know, you hear that sometimes, like, common sense, but it just takes a lot of work. Um, but you can definitely do it, you know, and I'm, I hope everyone makes that a, one of their goals in life to learn the language of their people. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that um, if you put time and effort to it, like anything is possible. And learning a language is the same way. I mean, what one day you Absolutely. won't know something, the next day, you know, maybe a few months later, you'll be like, wow, I'm having a whole conversation. Right. Like, there's something I like to, I like to say, uh, you know, if someone asks me a question, I don't know the answer. I don't think to know the answer. I'll say, I don't know now, but I'll know tomorrow. You know, something like that, like just something, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's just something to the extent that like, if I don't know something now, it doesn't mean that I won't know it later. And thank you for inspiring me to want to know the answer to this, right? Like, so it's the same language, language, right? Like, oh, do you know what to speak tomorrow? Oh, I don't know now, but I will, right? Exactly. exactly. Yeah, it's not too late, right? It's not too late at all. Actually, on that subject, do you have a um, tomorrow proverb maybe that you'd want to share and explain a little bit? Hmm. Lots to choose from. Mm, that's good. That's a good thing. It is a good thing. Um, let me think. There, there is there, there's an interesting one. Um, I'm paraphrasing here along the lines of like right uh don't don't rely on or don't trust tomorrow because tomorrow isn't yours and that has actually gotten me through a lot it, it sounds a little bit dark at first but it really got me through a lot of uh you know dark days i just you know um being in this career of academia which i honestly don't i don't consider myself like a a pure academic i think Tower getting trapped in the average tower and being disciplinary gates is horrible. Um, but there are some days because of that proverb when I will be like, if you look, if does this actually matter, right? It helps me to really put things into perspective. Does this actually matter right now, right? And um, because of that proverb, I've been gladly able to say no. This thing that initially gave me anxiety does not actually matter too much. Right, especially you know, if tomorrow isn't yours, I'm not going to waste my time obsessing <laughs> thing today. You know, I'm going to go spend time with my kids. You know, so that it was very helpful in that regard. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 one of the mottos that I and I may also be like someone, some tomorrow this time, be like, that's not what the proverb is intending. <laughs> well, that's not the proverb, right? That's all I'm using it in my daily life, and it's been very helpful. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you see ancient wisdom <laughs> comes right. comes in handy <laughs> don't try to apply some formulaic interpretation of of this in the way that doesn't help me <laughs> you're gonna use it how it helps yeah and um um i'm going to actually talk about another interest of yours that i think our listeners might find interesting um, is your interest in music because you're also quite um, 
uh, you know, forward about how you like to sing. <laughs> I think <laughs> that's what I've heard. I've heard actually from other people too. Oh yeah, Ken loves singing. And, yeah. and your music is yeah. in hardcore and things like that. Can you um, uh, share a little bit with our listeners, maybe a little bit more about that? Sure, about music in general or hardcore? Um, your relationship to music or hardcore or, uh, yeah, the, the music that interests sure. you and what it means to you. Oh, so I think if um, music didn't exist, I'd, I'd be a very miserable person. And first of all, if there was no such thing as hardcore or, um, you know, or metal, I would be a very miserable person. It, it's, it's very cathartic. It's a very cathartic genre, genres of music, the both of them. Um, so for me, I actually got into quote unquote radical politics because of, um, hardcore music. You know, um, my first window into this was I, I was, uh, I was, uh, I'm not, I'm not anymore, but I became a vegetarian because of a band named Earth Crisis. Um, straight edge vegetarian. Um, straight edge, you know, I didn't, I didn't drink, um, didn't smoke, didn't do any drugs. Um, and yeah, and that was since the time I was 14. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, when I was 23, I, I consumed a alcoholic beverage, but that's beyond the point. But it, it still meant something to me. You know, I was, I, I, uh, I got into this sort of radical politics of like animal liberation and about thinking, you know, looking at what other people were doing that was taken for granted and just like, this is what kids do at this age. And so I think my very contrarian mindset and my, my <laughs> insatiable here to learn more and to dig deeper into things that are taken for granted stem because of hardcore and because of metal you know um i was in a metal band since i was 14 years old because of a band named lamb of god um but the origin of all of this though is my dad when i was five years old literally a kindergartner played the black album by by metallica and the first song i ever heard was Man. and as a five-year-old it changed my life I loved that music since I was five years old because of my dad. My dad was very into Metallica, Black Sabbath, uh, but on the other end, he was very into like Easy E, right? <laughs> His interest was all over the place. Uh, but you know, my dad uh, now listens to still listen to Lamb of God as well. I found that CD in his car when I <laughs> when I used his car to drive around the island. It was Lamb of God that was playing, so I was like, "Good job, Dad." Um, but yeah, so. Started when I was five, joined a metal band when I was 14, was in metal bands throughout my entire teenage years, and along the way, found hardcore and got into radical politics. And so I honestly think that this music was the gateway for my um, decolonial uh, values and, um, you know, framework, you know, the mm. colonial framework of the world, I think, can be largely attributed to the training that hardcore and the, polit the politics associated with hardcore music provided to me. And I still find, I still find myself drawn to hardcore today. I listen to hardcore every single day. Um, <laughs> bands like Incendiary, bands like Jesus Peace. Um, I was listening to a band named uh, 
judiciary last night. Uh, what are other things from my terror? Right. Um, there's a there's another really cool band that's more on the punk side and rotting out. So I listen to all all of that type of music, and I can just relate to it. Um, oh, a hate breed, right? I listen to hate breed a lot. They give, they've given me um, a source of inspiration throughout my life in their lyrics. There's a song they have um, that's uh, called "This Is Now." You know, and, and pretty much the essence of the song is how can you change tomorrow if you can't change today, right? So, like, get off your ass and do something about it now, right? Mm-hmm. So, a lot of it really fits into why I got into activism and sort of the politics that I got into is because I've been primed for this since I was 14 years old, listening to this music, uh, this, this hardcore music that, like, spread that message, you know? Like, hardcore is ultra-inspiring, it's really a, a lot of the bands are like calling you to action, especially the more political bands, like um, like blatantly political bands, like Race Trader, for example. Um, that Race Trader's drummer is actually Andy Hurley from Fallout Boy, which is really interesting. But you know, like it's just it's the most. How do I say this? It's one of the most meaningful experiences to hear a song that makes you feel this cathartic release while also inspiring you to continue what you're doing. Right. And so that's really what it is for me. And yeah. oh, another thing is, mm-hmm. you know, um, when I was up, we had like a mini scene here with like metal, uh, hardcore, we had punk kids, right? Like we had a very awesome scene growing up. So I was able to find community in that. Um, you know, I didn't hang out with the crowd that listened to rap or uh, pop music or who, like, just wanted to, um, I don't know, like, you know, I, I that wasn't, like, the mainstream crowd I was hanging out with as a kid. It was these, these like, bunch of, you know, misfits. And I found myself saying that being a misfit is how you change the world because you don't agree with the dominant view. And so, you know, once again, just having that perspective since you're 14 years old, when it comes to something as uh, deep-seated as like American colonialism and American militarization in Guam, the misfit of me is saying, this doesn't fit. <laughs> I don't feel like this is the fit towards the genuine flourishing of our people. So, yeah, it means everything to me. I don't think I would have had this perspective. I don't think I would have been where I was today if it was not for hardcore music. Plain and simple. I would not be here doing this work. Oh man, I wonder if we've just uh, converted some hardcore listeners. After I hope so, <laughs> I really hope so. It is a music that is like you—you you don't really hear about Pacific Islanders like loving this kind of music too often. There are exactly. definitely some, you know. There's that Royal Alien Weaponry. They're metal, right? They're not hardcore, but they're—they're they're, they're into metal. Um, there's this like Samoan band. Um, forgetting the name, they have like. Sh- shepherd or sheep in the name they were also pretty 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 awesome to hear you know and um but like yeah i would love for just a directory of pacific islander metal and hardcore bands you know and punk bands as well. let's you know let's throw it all in there let's get a movement going guys you know like this music's so beautiful it can do so much for those who have like pent up uh frustration and anger like just listen yeah. to a hardcore song. allow yourself Right, allow yourself 
that catharsis. Oh my God. It's, it's, there's, it's an unparalleled experience hardcore can give. I've always um, said that at Pack Fest, they should have a hardcore metal night or not a hard, you know, a hardcore slash metal slash punk night for Pacific Islanders. <laughs> they, really they really should. They should. In Hawaii, it's whenever they <laughs> They have, and there are, there are Hawaiian, um, uh, well, I don't know if they're Hawaiian, but they are definitely, um, punk bands, metal bands, and hardcore bands in Hawaii. Um, I know because I used to go to all these shows and they were like, there's, there's a good scene out in Oahu. So whenever a fest pack is, you know, set to go, cause I know it was supposed to be in Oahu, they should set that up and ask these bands to play. Some of these bands were selling their EP as a way to raise money for Mauna Kea. Right. Nice. Like, right. You know, it, it's, there's just a connection. Like it's, it's amazing. And I just wish it was more appreciated because, but on the same token, I love Island reggae music. You know, I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Like, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that that's the music. That's like the only music that all of our people should be predominantly into, you know, like let's get more of our people into, into hardcore. Let's connect to these lyrics, you know, let's listen to some metal and, and, uh, you know, uh, get out some of that imagery that we want to get out in, in or po- po- you know, um, poetry, which I think a lot of uh, death metal is our dark poetry, right? But like, it's a vehicle of expression, and so I think if anyone's listening to this and wants to like say, hey, I also listen to hardcore metal or punk, let's go like find like minds and let's I don't know, let's just be in conversation with each other, you know? Like that would be amazing. <laughs> That'll be amazing. Exactly. Any way that we can grow, right, as people and come together right. in solidarity. <laughs> oh, and um, listen to this metal band in Guam. A bunch of my friends are in it. It's great production. It's called. They're called Surrender the Thief. You know, go listen to them. They're uh, they're a metal band here in Guam. Um, they went and did some shows in Japan. Um, so, you know, shout out to Guam local bands as well. You know, even if they're not metal, we just have, we have this really cool ska band named Fat Tofu. Uh, they're really <laughs> amazing as well. We have a good surf rock band named Matala. So go out and listen to Guam local music because it's amazing. Guam is filled with awesome talents. Oh, yeah, that's great. And actually, on that note, would you like to give any other messages before we end our podcast that uh, or this interview that we've done um i don't know if it was an interview it was a very for me it was like a nice free-flowing conversation with a friend so <laughs> you know uh, that was the <laughs> i hope it comes off as you know no one's like oh that should have been more formal you know that, that's not what i want but anyways I <laughs> um, yeah, um my twitter handle is uh minatagna m-i-n-a-t-a-t-n-g-a if uh, you want to connect for any of these issues, um, uh, go out, go check out Guam local bands. Um, and also please pay attention to what's happening in Guam, um, geopolitically, because I think, you know, there's a lot that we can glean from following the events happening, surrounding, happening in Guam and surrounding Guam that can tell us more about where the world might be heading. And so, please don't view Guam as this marginal island that deserves none of your attention. I think it deserves a lot of your attention, not only for that reason, but if we're talking about native stories, then uh, please don't leave us out. You know, Um, there has, there has been this sort of perspective, like 
because Guam has been the colony of the U.S. for the longest time, you know, there sometimes we're even left out of Pacific Islands conversations, uh, which is something I've noticed, you know, because we're just a U.S. territory. And so I'm highly asking all of you listening throughout Oceania or uh, in Turtle Island or wherever you come from, pay attention to Guam. Let's talk. You know, if you don't want to um, talk to me on Twitter, Kenneth Cooper at gmail.com uh, is, is my email. Let's talk more, right? I, I really look forward to having conversations such as the one that I'm having with Vihia today um, about Guam and telling Guam's story and using Guam's story as a vehicle for seeing different connections throughout the world. So, yeah. Now, mahalo nui, maruru roa to you because I I learned so much personally, and I I'm sure that our listeners would are expanding their minds and thinking about different ways to think about Oceania, and that's that's the whole point, right? Is that we get our stories out, and we we are the ones talking for ourselves, and we tell our own stories of what's going on in our own places, and so I think that you delivered that quite well. Thank you so much, Kenneth. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no problem. Um, you know, I I love conversations like these. So whoever wants to have them, hit me up. All right, cool. And for us at Native Stories, thank you so much for listening. If you guys want to further connect with us, please do as well. You can follow us on Facebook. Is Just search Native Stories for daily updates on Native Kaimea or things. You can download our mobile app and listen to us on all streaming podcasts outlets just search native stories and make sure to share us with your ohana koapili friends lovers or whoever you'd like native stories pride ourselves in being your resource of truth telling and indigenous knowledge and the more you share the more people will know and be informed so sending plenty of aloha to you all out there mahalo so much for tuning in yeah mahalo everybody thank you for listening then yeah please continue to listen to native stories they're doing excellent work <laughs> Thanks so much.